If you want to open up with me to uh, Galatians chapter 5. Now I think on the outlines it's the reverse, so go to talk 3. I think, is that correct? In terms of the headings. I wanted to take uh, the opportunity to thank you for having me here this weekend. Uh, it's been great to uh, spend it with you all and it's been great to, for me to be able to have prepare these. Um, so often you're, you're, you're preaching to people to seek to encourage them but what the scriptures do is they, they, they preach and apply as much to you, the preacher, as it is a message for others and I've really uh, benefited from this. So uh, thank you again. Sorry, I'm just trying to set a stopwatch so I don't bore you for too long. Huzzah! There we are. Excellent. I want to begin uh, this morning with a question. Uh, it's a bit, a bit of a vague question, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Uh, the question is, are you happy? Are you happy? Um, perhaps you might need to know what happiness is to answer that question. One guy, George Burns, wants to find happiness as having a large, loving, caring and close-knit family uh, in another city. Uh, how many of us would claim to be truly happy? Listen to this. Spanish ruler, Raman III, who reigned towards the end of the first millennium, made this startling admission. He said, I have now reigned for about 50 years in victory or peace, Beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies, neither riches and honours and power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor have I been wanting of any earthly blessing. In this situation I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness and they have, that have fallen my lot. They amount to 14. Uh, he was known as Raman the Pessimist, kind of the grand Eeyore of Spain to his friends. Uh, and I'm sure for most of us here this morning we would take a far more positive outlook on life. Uh, but let me pursue you on this for a short while. Are you truly happy with yourself? Uh, with the kind of person you are? With your habits? With your moods? With your, with your thoughts? Because if I'm, I'm honest with you, I don't think that I am. At one level, I look at my life and I'm truly thankful. God has been very good to me. I have so much to thank him for, but there are times when I'm grieved by what's going on in my own heart. Uh, for example, by my attitudes towards other people. Uh, by my struggle with, with sin. And when I come face to face with that, in one sense, I'm truly unhappy. Uh, Jim Packer makes this claim in his book Keeping Step with the Spirit which just might explain my, my discontent. He says, God has implanted a passion for holiness deep in every born again heart. Holiness which means being near God, like God, given to God and pleasing to God is something believers want more than anything else in the world. Now if, if Packer is right, I am unhappy when I am unholy. I am unhappy when I am unholy. And maybe happiness 
and unhappiness are not the best categories here. Perhaps contentment and discontentment are better. See, as we read the scriptures, it almost seems as if we are hardwired for holiness. And so those of you who stand with me in my discontent, I have good news uh, for you this morning. But before we move into that, let's just do a quick recap of where we've been. So in talk one, we talked about the Holy Spirit and saw that he was the one who reveals Christ. As a paraclete, the advocate, he parades Jesus in all he's done before our eyes and shows him to be the one that he claimed to be. And in recognising Christ, we recognise our own need and are convicted of sin and run to Christ for forgiveness and life. In our second study, we saw how the Spirit is the one who gives life. In fact, the Spirit defines life. Without Him, there is no life. With Him, there is life as God intended it to be. And the glory of that truth is that the life we live as Christians and the life we enjoy as Christians is, is is not an effort by our own ingenuity. It is a gift of God. It's a miracle of rebirth. It happens to us, not by us. And yesterday in talk three, we looked at how the Holy Spirit equips us. Uh, the Holy Spirit is that great distributor of, of gifts and those gifts are given for the benefit of the church, the growth of the church, but also to be used uh, and enjoyed for God's glory. And in our final study today, we're going to look at the Spirit as the one who transforms us. He changes us from one degree of glory to another. He conforms us into the image of Jesus uh, and so brings us into to being the people that God created us to be. And part of the way he does this is to make us unhappy or, or discontent when we are less than what we should be. It is his task to make us more like Jesus and to restore us so effectively to bear his image. Now, I don't know if you've ever reflected on that, what it means to be image bearers of God. To be image bearers of God is a truly amazing thing. The Spirit's task is to transform us so that we increase in our effectiveness of, of showing and displaying the world what God is like. If the world wants to know what God is like, the world should look at his people. That is both exhilarating and intimidating all at the same time. Now we are changing from one degree of glory to another, so I'm not, I'm not stating that we need to be perfect and, and part of displaying God's glory to the world is to be a, a broken people who are a forgiven people. But the scriptures make it clear that that God changes us from one degree of glory to the next. Uh, we increasingly should be conforming to the likeness of Jesus and as the watching world looks on, they should have some picture of what God is like. Well, turn with me to Galatians 5. I'm going to read verses 16 to 26. But before we read that, let me pray. Father, this morning... Again, we pray that uh, we might have a realistic assessment of ourselves, that you might humble us uh, to recognise how far we have come from you, how, how far we fall short of you. That again, that as you, by your Spirit, apply the work of Christ to our lives, uh, as we go to the cross uh, and remember 
that he died as our substitute, that he rose uh, victorious over death and ascended to the Father and he now indwells us by his Spirit, that that, that that work makes us right with you. There is nothing we need to do to be right with you. Uh, that is done. But we thank you still that by your Spirit you are doing things in us to make us more like Jesus. And as we understand that work of uh, becoming more like him, we pray that uh, that might excite us, uh, Lord, that that might lead to uh, hearts which are, which are soft uh, to your spirit as it applies the word to our lives and that you might truly make us uh, as individuals but also as a community uh, more like Jesus. So as the watching world looks on uh, and as we speak truth in love uh, to those who don't know you, uh, that those uh, might hear that message, might see our lives Uh, and become Christians and turn to you in repentance and faith and that you get the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Well, as we move uh, through this passage... uh, There's points in your outline. So the first one is a realistic assessment. In verse 17, it says, The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. So you do not do what you want. A realistic assessment. I don't think I need to convince you that the Christian life is a bit of a struggle and it is far from easy. Now, one thing we often like to do as human beings is to blame our circumstances or potentially we like to blame other people. But in fact, the most significant struggle with sin is with you. Just just to illustrate, and it's... It's quite a, a helpful illustration and it's quite, you know, it kind of kicks me in the butt every time I think about this as well. But just think for a second about tiredness. <coughs> now, under, under that label of tiredness, think about the amount of behaviours that we often excuse. So people often blame or attribute short-temperedness to tiredness. And to some degree, often we we attribute uh, our irritability to it also. But what we'll see here is that the fruit of the Spirit is 
patience. And that fruit is to be exercised no matter what our physical state is. So what we see with with tiredness or fatigue is it reduces our natural ability for self-control or it might just reduce our our felt need for the approval of others so that we, we can kind of be a little more irritable than we usually would be. But neither our our tiredness or our circumstances cause sin. What what causes sin is is our hearts and what comes from within us. It's the the occasion for which we can either choose to to honour God by displaying the fruits of the Spirit in self-control and patience or we can be irritable or short-tempered. The most significant struggle is with you, it's not our circumstances. And this is why our sinful nature and the indwelling spirit are are in conflict with each other. What's the result? Well, more often than not, I don't do what I want to do. More often than not, I give in to the sinful nature, or the flesh, as it's described here. And the spirit is grieved. If I obey the spirit, the flesh is enraged, and my sin matters, and, and, and it affects things. It affects community also. And it's quite a, a realistic assessment, isn't it? It, it, it? The description maps onto our experience and it has a ring of truth about it. And if it may be a little perverse, there's almost a certain comfort in the realism of it, isn't it? Because it does, it does describe our experience. Well, if we move to the second heading, though, an encouraging promise. And we just move back to verse 16 here. It says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of this sinful nature. That realism makes this assertion all the more encouraging. The battle we find ourselves in, in which we struggle against nature that is opposed to God, is not an equal struggle with an uncertain outcome. Live by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will, you will not indulge the sinful nature. You will not indulge the flesh. Well, this command to, to live by the Spirit, what does that mean? Well, in effect, Paul is saying that what we are looking at uh, in, in, in the last session is that there is no... Sorry, in the session on, on the life-giving nature of the Spirit. There is no life without the Spirit of God. Life as God intended it to be lived, life as it were made to live it, is only possible through the Holy Spirit. As a result, the Christian life is a life by the Spirit. There is no other life, there is no other way to live it. It is a life in which the Spirit animates us and gives us the desires to love God and to please Him. See, just as we, we physically live by our hearts beating and pumping blood around our bodies, so we, we spiritually live by the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, working in us and conforming us, making us more like Jesus. The encouragement then is to be a Christian, uh, that is to be a Christian, is to live by the Spirit and that means that we will not gratify the desires of of nature opposed to God. What does gratify mean? Well, we don't, we don't indulge it. Or we don't encourage it. We don't gratify it. <coughs> but what happens if we do indulge it and gratify it? Well, it's a, a good news, bad news situation. So the third heading, a sobering thought. In verse 21 it says, 
I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who will not... Sorry, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this... What's the like this? Well, just above he's listed about 15 vices. Uh, but it's, clu- it's clear from his concluding kind of and the like phrase that it's only representative. See, what all the, these things, these vices have in common is an obsession with self. They're all about me. See, with me at the centre of my world, these are the resulting acts. When I am the primary focus of my affection, mayhem and chaos is the result. See, and one of the striking things about these, this list of, of vices is, is its range. It kind of moves from the unusual, like it's got witchcraft in there, uh, to the ordinary. It says bits of rage, but, but that could be more kind of aptly translated also, kind of outbursts of anger. In fact, just look at the central list. Hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. Now, if you think about it, don't all of those lurk in our hearts? All of those lurk in all of our hearts. Which is itself evidence of the uncomfortable truth of that that civil war that rages within us. But what Paul is saying is that if these things characterise us, if these things shape and colour our lives, if they are who we are as a person and who we are known as, then the warning is, is sobering indeed. Uh, there's a French noblewoman, and I will not even begin to try and pronounce her name in French, so I'll do it in Australian. May Bigot de Cornuel. It's like that? That's good, isn't it? Uh, well, anyway, she was a French noblewoman who used to write letters, uh, and she once claimed that no man is a hero to his own valet. Presumably it's because uh, the, the discontinuity between public and private life. You could put it like this. Those who know us best respect us least. Now, now just think about this in, in, in the kind of your own context. Uh, your friends, how do they think about you and how does your family think about you? Because all our social graces go out the window, don't they, when we go home over summer. Uh, our family knows us best and, and, and there's, there's a certain element of truth there, doesn't it? That those who know us best respect us least because they may love us but do they admire us? And these sobering words of Paul indicate that this is not how it should be. A battle is one thing in which we might struggle against the acts of a sinful nature but what he talks about here is that, that settled state in which these acts are, are given in my life. And in my heart, that is altogether different. So he, his, his warning there that you will not inherit the kingdom of God if these, if these characteristics are settled disposition in our hearts, is a, is a, it's a real warning. Because his understanding is that, in verse 16, that, 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 that if we are of the Spirit, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of our heart. Paul is saying that Because we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is doing that work of transforming us. These things aren't to characterise us. We are meant to be moving from one degree of glory to another. That's what the Spirit is doing in us. 
But a settled state in which these acts are given in my life and in my heart is altogether different. Well, dynamic test. But the fruit of the Spirit we see is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Paul has exhorted his readers to live by the Spirit in verse 16. He has commended being led by the Spirit in verse 18. And now he demonstrates the tangible reality of the Spirit's presence and work in the lives of the people of God. This is what the Spirit produces. This is how he transforms. How do we know we are living by the Spirit? How do we know that the Spirit is leading us? Well, Paul says it's fruit. And let me quote uh, Kelly Capic to you. He says, God by his Spirit brings new life where he moves. And the evidence of this movement is the fruit it produces. God by his Spirit brings new life where he moves and the evidence of this movement is the fruit it produces. And what we read here is the delicious fruit with its nine segments. But notice how Paul phrases it. The fruit of the Spirit is. Fruit is a piece. It's a single unit. We can't pick and choose. The Spirit is working in our lives and this is the fruit that it grows. And as we look at this list, if the acts of the sinful nature are all about me, well, the fruit of the Spirit is quite the opposite. It's all about others. See, only the Spirit can do that work of transformation. Only He can make us more like Jesus. And as we've kind of touched on a few times, and this is what true humanness is, the Spirit makes us more, not less human. If we want to see true humanity, we look at Jesus. And the Spirit is making us more, not less like Him. See, only the Spirit can take tarnished, defaced and broken specimens and turn them into people who bear a striking resemblance to Jesus, their elder brother. Only he can restore us in the image of God and turn us into lovers of God and lovers of others. We can't do that by our own kind of moral willpower. It's the Spirit's work. And he does that uniquely and powerfully, creatively and determinately and purposefully in our lives. Because that is his work. Well, how does he do it? Well, by revealing more of Jesus to us. <coughs> Let me read to you verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live with the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, in this sentence, Paul encapsulates the, the, the distinctive genius of of the gospel. See, notice the connection between the two. It, it didn't say those who have crucified the sinful nature who belong to Jesus Christ, but rather it says those who belong to Christ Jesus who have crucified the sinful nature. Do you notice the difference there? The belonging comes before the crucifying. The belonging comes before the crucifying. In any other religion, it's the other way around. We live so that we can belong. But the Gospel says we belong 
so we can live. What we are proceeds and determines what we should do. So often sometimes when people talk about the life of holiness as a Christian, we're encouraged to be what you are. In Christ you are justified, sanctified, made right before God, so be and go and live that life of a justified, sanctified person. But because we belong, we are those who have crucified the sinful nature and its passions and desires. And that's hard work sometimes. It is an act of the mind, heart and will. It's decisive and deliberate. In 2 Peter uh, 1.5, let me just read it to you briefly. It says, For this reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. So the Bible does tell us that we must make an effort to grow in holiness. But it never denies that that the Spirit is the one that empowers this through and through to live out who we are. See, the Bible is not like a cheap infomercial that, that keeps telling us to change and then serving as an enthusiastic cheerleader saying, you can do it. We've already been changed. Belonging comes before crucifying. If I can just make two observations. This might seem like a strange one initially, but run with me. So, what's the difference between crucifixion and other methods of execution, say, decapitation? Now, I'm not asking for an answer here. That was a rhetorical question just before uh, anyone wanted to demonstrate visibly for me. Uh, but, but what the difference is, is that decapitation is instant. What's crucif- crucifixion? Well, it, it's, it's painfully slow. And by way of principle, we've, we've crucified the sinful nature with its lusts and desires, but it, it sure takes a long time to die. Let me read to you this quote, and for the life of me, I can't remember where I got it from, but it's a good quote nonetheless. The first great secret of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of our repentance. If besetting sins persistently plague us, it is either because we have never truly repented or because we have repented, we have not maintained our repentance. It's as if, having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it, to caress it, to long for its release, even try to take it down again from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud, malicious or impure thought invades our minds, we must kick it out at once. (coughs) It's fatal to begin to examine it and to consider whether we're going to give in to it or not. We have declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh. We are not going to draw the nails. It's a helpful quote and, and often times I don't, I mean this may be speaking more to uh, the males though that said, you know, this is a struggle for, for some females as well. When, when guys particularly come and talk about their struggle with pornography, uh, more often than not sin becomes 
pornography. That becomes the kind of the issue. Whenever you talk about sin, whenever sin is spoken about, that's where the mind races. That's their besetting sin, as, as the kind of older language is. And, and while it is a, a sin that needs to be dealt with, you can see that the way that even in confessing and repenting and thinking about their struggle with pornography can kind of self-perpetuate the struggle. Um, I remember that there's an old, and I'll get this completely wrong, but uh, an old idea that you know, if, you have, if, you, if you're watching a bird circle around you and, and, and with the sin as you watch it, you don't want to struggle with this sin, but oh, it's, it's, it's really struggling with me and you, and you keep consistently thinking about this sin, well, the, the bird may come and nest on your head as you kind of focus on it all the time. And it's not that we shouldn't try and deal with issues specifically, but, but when we kind of indulge an issue, uh, we go back to it, uh, we, we give it entertainment and, and, and indulging it that we shouldn't do. We should just kick the thought out of our heads. Uh, as that quote said, it's, fate, it's fateful to begin to examine it and consider it. Where are we going to give, give in to it or not? Because we should have declared war on it. It should have just not entered our head. Now what I'm not saying is if you're struggling with those things, don't confess it to those around you. Absolutely, it's important to do that. But in that act, don't let it become the only sin that dominates your life. Uh, let the fruit of the Spirit start to be at work by focusing on what Jesus has done rather than on the sin you're struggling with. And as a bit of a, a side note, what's interesting in... Um, and this is just more by way of principle as well. In, in Matthew's account of the temptation of Jesus, now, that temptation of Jesus is very much in its context. It's, it's showing how, uh, unlike Israel and unlike Adam, Jesus is the righteous man. He did not give in to temptation. And it, what it does is it, it demonstrates that he is the Messiah. He is the one who will overturn sin. That's its, its big context, so... Don't remove it from that context. But by nature, of, if, when we think about sin, sometimes sin can seem like it, it's such an overarching thing for us, isn't it? So our, our struggles, Jesus would never understand. You know, it says he understands, but he'd never understand truly what it is to be tempted. Uh, but in, in, in Hebrews it says you know, we don't have a, a great high priest who is unable to sympathise with us. In Hebrews 4. Uh, who is able to sympathise with us, sorry. Uh, and, and so the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is quite interesting. So, so any, any sin or, or temptation you've had, well, if you think about the temptations that Jesus faced there, that of being immensely hungry and thirsty. Now, these are kind of <coughs> basic human needs. So if, in the midst of temptation, whatever it be, uh, you're not going to give in to it if you're starving or if you're thirsty, Jesus faced, you know, in that example, those temptations which are, you know, the most basic needs. Uh, he's been there essentially. He's been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And and that we know that by the Spirit now, because Jesus overcame that, and we know from one Corinthians ten thirteen that no temptation has seized us, which is come to man, that we can face sin, knowing that by the Spirit we do not have to give in to the sinful nature. See, before Jesus, sin was a given. 
But now the Spirit indwells us. Sin is not a given. Uh, by the Spirit we can say no to sin. Now that's a slow and transforming work. Uh, it's not perfectionism by any means. You know, we've got a long way to go and God transforms us. But the difference with the Spirit is it's a life-giving Spirit. It enables us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Now that, I just want to qualify that. That doesn't mean that we kind of run headlong into temptations, kind of like a, a bring it on kind of thing. Uh, Jesus does say in the Lord's Prayer, you know, do not lead us into, into temptation. There's wisdom in the sense that we should avoid those opportunities where we might be given to sin. But even when we face sin, God uses that to transform and to change us to be more like his son. And let me just draw attention too to the link between the sinful nature and desires. So in verse 16, it says, I say to you, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in verse 24 it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So what's the link between sinful nature and desires in these two verses? Uh, the Greek word for uh, desires is epithumia. Now, I was never good at Greek, but this is a word I could remember, slightly because desire had a, a sexy feel about it. So my wife used to, when we used to, no, this is this is sounding very wrong. It wasn't like this at all, but because she did the same course as me. But one way we remembered was it to kind of, you know, sexually kind of wiggle the body and say epithumia as a way to uh, remember this word. And so in Greek exams, it came to mind quite easily as I kind of sat there and shimmied to myself. Um, but thumos is is desire, and epi is a word which which intensifies it. Uh, I prefer the German uber. We could we could say as well. Uber, thumia, thumia or thumos. Uh, so epi-desire is kind of like a, it's a hyper-desire. Uh, and desire in itself is not wrong. It's wrong when it becomes a hyper-desire. You know that old phrase, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a God thing. It becomes something ultimate. And the acts of the sinful nature have something good at its core. They become wrong when they become inordinate or displaced or overemphasised. And what the Spirit does in his transforming work is he takes the kind of epi out of epithumia. He puts desires in their rightful place and he transforms us in a way which animates us to be lovers of God and lovers of others. He kind of reorders our desires. Because desire is not wrong, desire is a good thing. But when hyper-desire, when, when other things become ultimate, that's when they become bad things. And the Spirit works within us to rightly transform us to be lovers of God and lovers of others. Well, a reassuring invitation, point six. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I was once a boring dancer. I used to say this. I used to come up and say, believe it or not, I was once a boring dancer, and as a 19-year-old, you would have gone, no, though strangely I think people now go, oh yeah, I can see that. Um, so I was once a boring dancer, a very good boring dancer by the way, 
And uh, key to being as good as I was is that in ballroom dancing, the male has to take the lead and the partner follows by keeping in step. Now, that's what we need to do with the spirit as he transforms us. It tells us to keep in step with the spirit. He is our life, so we need to follow his lead. Well, how do we do that? We'll look at verses 15 and 26. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. See, the bookends to this section are, sections are warnings against community disin- disintegration. Life in the spirit is very much life in community because it is here among God's people that he makes us more like Jesus, that he transforms us. And so it's in the midst of community as we live our individual lives in the midst of community that we follow his lead and live his life by loving God with the intensity with intensity and, and each other deeply from the heart. That is so key. One another is so key in the Christian life. In other words, we need to follow the Spirit's lead uh, and, and, and dance in the midst of community together. <laughs> it's cute, isn't it? Uh, I, hope, I hope this has been an, an encouragement to you. Is there any questions that might come to mind just on the back of that one that I may or may not be able to answer? Well, I'm just thinking maybe about our friends or most students back at university. How do we best think about them when they, they just want to do what's natural to them? Um, doesn't mean or just express themselves. And then thinking about how you talk about true humanity is being remade in the spirit more and more. Does that, that make sense as a question? Yeah. I think... Um, I think what what is important there is that you know I, I, in the Gospels Jesus says I've come to give life to the, life and life to the full. Um, in youth group we used to have drink bottles that said life to the max. I don't like extreme sports and things like that though. So fullness is a much better image for me. Uh, but in a sense that I think one thing we can be do is is modelling the goodness of life in the spirit. Uh, and that's going to be done in the midst of, of community. We need to give them a better story um, and to demonstrate that. See, I, I think more often than not, non-Christians, you know, and, and, and there's, a, there's a certain right element to this, but more often than not, they think in terms of Christianity, is the way they engage with it is what I can't do anymore. Um, and what we need to demonstrate is that, um, you know, that life in the spirit is is the good life, and uh, we need to model that. And, ma- and perhaps some of us aren't modelling the good life well. Um, so we we need to be a community that models the good life well. Um, so that that's a warrant that you know, like when when um, Paul talks about. Some, some of the image of um, the first fruits of the new creation. So the first fruits, the idea, uh, I'm running here so I'm not thinking as sharply as I could, but um, 
the idea that the, the foretaste of the new creation is, is the church. Uh, it's certainly not all it will be, but if people want to know what heaven will be like, the church is one place to look. And so how do we as God's people living together demonstrate the goodness of what will be in the new creation? So we, we should be living better than other people. Now better in not a kind of just a, a moral sense, but, but people who, you know, we're a thankful people. God has blessed us in so many ways. How, how do we party in a way that demonstrates thankfulness to God? We should have the better parties. We don't have parties where we just get hammered. Uh, we, we have parties where we can, we can enjoy God's good gifts, absolutely, of, 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 of alcohol and food and those kinds of things, but parties in which demonstrate that in such a way that people can see that we, we're a thankful people and, and we actually appreciate and enjoy one another's company and how we treat one another. I mean, that's a bit of a token example, but I think that's going to be more powerful in demonstrating you know, the bankruptcy of, of chasing after pleasure and experience in its own right. Any other questions? I have a question, please. Yeah. Regarding Keeley's, um, the acts of the sinful nature, I'll proceed someone else doing them here. When should we rebuke them? Because, you know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. Did everyone hear that? So if we if we see within the midst of our community um, either patterns or behaviours in people's lives which are more like those described in the sinful nature rather than those lived by the Spirit, should we rebuke? Uh, and, and in light of that, particularly Jesus' passage about not judging someone with uh, a speck in their eye when you've got a log in their own. Um, so I think that, that warning not to be judgmental is, is a very good warning in the sense that self-assessment is always a very good thing to do. We need to be making sure that we are not in our own right uh, hypocritical. Um, but there is that command in, in, in Ephesians to speak truth in love uh, and throughout Titus... Uh, you know, it, it, older women should speak to younger younger women and, and older men to younger men and the context of one anothering in, in the scriptures, it does tell us to to rebuke one another. And rebuke's a, a funny thing because more often than not, that verse in um, the Gospels about the log in your own eye and the speck in someone else's means that we just never speak truth in love. Uh, most of that comes from fear of other people. We, would, we don't want to upset people. We, don't, uh, we want to please people, so we don't speak truth in love. Um, so first of all, we need to have a right fear of God rather than fear of other people. But uh, the ways in which we, we speak truth in love, well, the aim is to always see the other person built up. So you're not just trying to expose wrong for wrong's sake to show that you're right and they're wrong. Uh, we, we want to see them built up, come to repentance and restored to community. So it's right that we speak truth in love but that can happen along the way. So it's as we bring the word of God to bear on each of our lives. So each week as we sit under a sermon, there's going to be things in which we should be bringing to bear on our lives and changing. That's the nature of, of growing as a Christian. And so if you create a culture of that, 
um, rebuke doesn't become this kind of crisis moment thing. It becomes a culture of discipleship. It's in the context of life that you can just gently, you know, speak truth in love uh, and, and encourage as well. Um, it's my two cents anyway, or two pence, as you might say in England. Cool. Well, I hope it's been an encouragement to you. Let me um, pray for us as, as we finish. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that the Spirit uh, parades him in all his glory uh, in front of us, his work for us on the cross in dying for us, uh, his death, his resurrection and ascension to make us right with you. We thank you that you have made us right uh, through his work completely. Uh, but Lord, we thank you that the work of the Spirit is to make us more like him. And Lord, that's a long and painful work, but we do pray, Lord, that you might be changing us from one degree of glory to another to be like Jesus. Lord, please, uh, in our own lives and in the midst of community, expose those things in which uh, sin takes hold, uh, those things to which we may be blind to. Help us to repent of them, to go to the cross, and by your Spirit to live lives which please you. In Jesus' name, Amen.